All right. Um, uh, let's see. How was uh, basketball? Good. We won both games. All right. Cool. Um, okay. Grace, Han, Daniel. Um, I want to say, no, I don't want to say. Um, I want to say Pam, but I know that's wrong. Um, It'll come back to me. Um, Nikki, um, Jamie. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, Justy and Zach. Okay, wait. There's a reason I want to say Pam because in my mind it's associated with your name um, for reasons that are not, probably have nothing to do with, with um, available to other people. Um, remind me. Tammy. Tammy, okay. Um, I guess maybe it's just the AM part. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? Um, all right. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, two, four, six, eight. Um, Rhoda is ill, but she's not in the class officially anyhow. Um, and who else is missing? Um, all right. Well, I'll work it out. Okay, so we were looking at Love's Alchemy, that charming poem. Um, I said I'd get you another list of stuff, and I will try to do it in the next couple of days. It was a long weekend. Um, long not in the sense of plenty of time to do stuff. Long in the sense of no time to do anything. Um, so remind me what page? One thirteen. Yes. Okay, um, so um, we basically just started this uh, just to um, recollect the associations of the imagery. Love's mind is an obvious one once you think about it. Some that have deeper digged love's mind than I say that is, tell me, where his centric happiness doth lie. I have loved and got and told. But should I love get tell till I were old, I should not find that hidden mystery. That is the hidden mystery of where his centric happiness is. Um, how love can lead to happiness. Um, and in particular, how sexual love can lead to happiness. So I have got, I have loved, I've seen someone and um, uh, chosen her, felt erotically attracted to her, and got, she um, consented, and told, and I counted. So remember the word tell here means to count. Um, but if I keep doing this, should I love get tell till I were old? I should not find that hidden mystery, namely where his centric happiness doth lie. Um, oh, tis imposture all. That is, there is no happiness in love. Um, you can't find it. And as no chemic yet the elixir got, but glorifies his pregnant pot, if by the way to him befall some odiferous thing, or medicine all. So lovers dream a rich and long delight, but get a winter-seeming summer's night. Um, so 
no Kamek yet the elixir got, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Right. So even though no one has ever managed to produce the elixir that would change lead to gold, um, no one has ever um, obtained it, so got there means obtained. Um, but with, you should just hear that there's a resonance here of got in um, the third line, I have loved and got, which means possessed. Um, sexually possessed. Um, so obviously the chemist, the, the alchemist wouldn't sexually possess the elixir, um, simply obtain it. But then you may remember that there's yet another use of the word got that we talked about already, which is um, we tend to say begot. Um, that is, um, uh, became the parent of, um, um, produced a child, produced offspring. That's the biblical use. That is, and Abraham begot Isaac, who begot Jacob, who begot 12 sons, etc. Um, that's sometimes simply got. So, um, for example, in Much Ado About Nothing, um, uh, the Don Pedro um, says to Beatrice, I will get you a husband. And she says, I would rather um, have one of your mother's getting, that is, um, a husband like you, someone whom your mother got, in that sense. Um, so Dunn is allowing, he's not pushing all these things, but he's allowing the resonances of these words to be there. Um, and um, Really, you should think of this as overtones. It's not that what Dunn is doing is producing a kind of um, secret ambiguity there, um, which is one way to understand him. That's what, you, what happens with double entendres. That is that um, you say something which turns out to have a completely different meaning. And Dunn will do that also. We'll look at um, uh, one of his poems, um, to, his, to His Mistress I'm Going to Bed, is, we'll, we'll give a great example of that at the end. Um, but in this case, it's just Dunn really likes to pack in possibilities into his language. Um, not as different roads to explore, but as different um, um, ways of keeping the imagery on the same wavelength, you could say. Um, so here he's about to talk about the pregnant pot of the alchemist. So that's why the word got has to have the resonance. You're nodding, so oh, no, go like, with it. No, I was just smiling for connection. Yeah. So the alchemist is, is um, talks about his pregnant pot, um, and therefore the word got has to mean something like impregnate. Um, impregnate with the elixir. So although it's true that no alchemist has yet gotten, produced, begat the elixir that would, that would turn um, lead to gold, the philosopher's stone, or the sorcerer's stone, as the Americans put it. Um, you know that the English title was Harry Potter and the Philosopher's yeah. Stone, yeah. Um, so, and is no chemic yet, the elixir got, but nevertheless <coughs> glorifies his pregnant pot that is, just says, look how great what I've done is. Um, when he produces something in his crucible, in his test tube, in the pot that he's stirring all this stuff up, 
if, by the way to him befall some odoriferous thing or medicine all. So if um, he gets something, if he gets some um, sweet-smelling thing, um, or even some, some foul-smelling thing, because at least it's interesting, or if he gets something that would work um, as um, a medicine, as an antidote to something. Um, so no one has gotten what they're looking for, which is the Philosopher's Stone, but if something befalls to such an alchemist, um, he says, yay, look what I've managed to produce, I'm so great. Um, so he glorifies his pregnant pot. So in the same way, so lovers dream a rich and long delight, but get a winter-seeming summer's night. So how, did the, how does the um, simile work? That is, the analogy works how? What is being analogized to what? Um, lovers imagining that they'll have this long, beautiful romance, but getting only a, a brief and cold summer's night together is like the alchemist. Like, thinking that he's discovered the Philosopher's Stone, but just making a, like, having it blow up in his face, basically. Yeah, just getting some gook. And saying, oh, cool, gook. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, they dream a rich and long delight. That, what is, that's the alchemist doing what? Dreaming of having alchemy. Yeah, dreaming of the Philosopher's Stone, let's say. Um, so they dream a rich and long delight. That is, they imagine that they will get this thing that will last forever, pure gold. Um, but what they get, and there again is the word get, going back to, um, as, as Nochemic yet the elixir got, what they managed to get is a winter-seeming summer's night. That is, they get something. Um, it's winter-seeming because it's actually not all that pleasant. Um, certainly not as pleasant as they fantasize it will be. And it's also short. Summer's Night, which is uh, very short. We already knew this from, know this from um, uh, The Sun Rising. Um, and, um, but it seems like winter because it's um, short, though it is. It, it's, uh, it doesn't last long. It's like the old joke. Do you, get, do you guys know what Grossinger's is? Um, it was one of the famous Catskill resorts, and the old joke about Grossinger's are um, the um, uh, Jews who, who visit, it, it, it's a resort for Jewish people, and the Jews who visit it um, start complaining, and one says, ugh, and the food, it's poison. And I guess Woody Allen tells this joke, but we can't talk about Woody Allen today. Oh, the food, it's poison, says one, and the other says, yes, and so little of it. Um, <laughs> So um, it's, and the sex, it's terrible. Yes, and it lasts so short, <laughs> um, is, is um, what he's saying. So one thing I want to say about the resonances here is that, that what Dunn is doing in miniature by packing so much into his language um, and just letting the overtones um, uh, modulate each other, you know, the way guitar players will do. Um, will work on the overtones and the feedbacks and so on. 
Um, well, I guess acoustic guitar players will do overtones and electric guitar players will do feedbacks. Um, but just in the way he's modulating and working on, on all those overtones and letting um, the kind of the words kind of um, um, interfere with each other's vibrations, um, that habit of mind of his is also what makes him a metaphysical poet. That is, his capacity to see um, various parts of a metaphor various aspects of metaphor um, that keep working with what it is that he wants to say. So we'll see a version of this um, in the next poem that we'll look at, which is a valediction for Biddy Morning. Um, but the um, idea of metaphysical poetry, um, the idea that things are being yoked by violence together, <coughs> and we still haven't quite looked at Dunn doing that um, whole hog, um, but that idea of things being yoked by violence together, that is, that you say, um, to take a particularly gruesome example from Herbert, who generally isn't gruesome, whose who's, um, tact is extraordinary, um, but to take one gruesome example from Herbert, um, he says, so Jesus on the cross is um, going to bring our prayers to God, he gets stabbed in the side by a Roman soldier, so now there's a hole in his side. So he says, treat me as a mailbag in which you can put your prayers in the hole in my side and they'll be delivered up to God. So this is a poem called The Bag. And who is the bag? The bag is Jesus Christ. So not many people think of him as a bag. Um, but the metaphor works in every way except um, soulfully you could say. Um, and another way of putting it is to say the metaphor works. That is, you have to work to make that metaphor something um, other than your initial sense of its grotesquery, um, that the body of Christ should be like a bag to bring our prayers to God. Um, that just doesn't seem right to say that, you know, Christ is like a... Is, um, like a lord who dies um, among thieves and murderers. Um, that's fine. Um, but to say that he's like a bag is strange. Um, and the metaphysical poets do tend to produce very strange metaphors. Um, you can see why when you see how much Dunn is, in a sense, how centrifugal his imagination is. That is, how every word suggests possibilities that um, he can then draw back into the general place that his poem is going, um, but draw in from all sorts of different directions. Um, so he always feels a little bit chaotic, and that's what, his, that's what he's great at, is feeling chaotic, um, and is feeling that it's chaos just under control, and his metaphors feel like they might turn into chaos, and yet they don't. Um, so, lovers dream a rich and long delight, but get a winter-seeming summer night. And just think of that as an analogy. So, the analogy, or think about what he's doing here structurally. Again, this is what may feel very modern about Dunn, is that he takes an analogy. Um, an alchemist, not able to produce gold, but producing something either odoriferous or medicinal, or maybe both. And then he says, okay, in the same way, lovers dream a rich and long delight, just like alchemists, they dream a rich and long delight, 
but get another metaphor, namely a winter-seeming summer's night. That is, um, the analogy contains, you could say, sorry, I didn't mean for us to, to get into the nuts and bolts of literary um, form, but I think we have to for a minute. Um, everyone knows about tenor and vehicle, those, that terminology of tenor and vehicle. <coughs> okay, I think it's actually I.A. Richards came up with it, um, although I'm not positive that it is, but I'm pretty sure it was I.A. Richards. So the idea is that in a metaphor, and also um, you could say the same thing for a simile, although it's not clear that it's exactly the same, but the idea is that in a metaphor, metaphors, we basically get their meaning. If you say... Um, my love is like, a ro- is like a red, red rose, to quote Burns. Um, what you're basically saying is, um, my love is beautiful and delightful and makes me happy. Um, and in order to say that, it has to be the case that somehow um, everyone will get almost instantaneously that if you say something is like a red, red rose, or if you say my love is like a red, red rose, the word love is already determining how to understand red, red rose, and red, red rose is therefore coming to us as this beautiful and lovely thing, which is the way we tend to think of it anyhow. Um, so the beautiful loveliness of the red, red rose and the fact that I'm comparing my love to it makes it a good metaphor for my love. And what you will take from that is he's saying he really likes her. Um, that is, if I say my love is like a red, red rose, that's um, um, saying... Um, a nice thing about her, and if you want to unpack what's nice about it, it's that it's be- that um, he's saying she's beautiful, that she is fresh, that there's something spring-like um, about the atmosphere um, that comes from her, that she's sweet, um, and um, that he values her. Possibly there's a sense of fragility there. All of those things you wouldn't even have to think twice about. Um, to get that general feel of what that line is meaning, right? Um, No one would say, um, what are you talking about? When I was a kid, there used to be these cards, um, novelty cards that we used to trade, which would have on one side, I'm sure you can still find things like this, but on one side there would be some um, really nice sentiment, and then on the other side there would be the literalization of the sentiment. So the one I remember, uh, one I remember, um, is a card that says you look like a million bucks and then if you flip the card over it would say all green and wrinkled <laughs> um, so the idea is that's a surprising tenor because what you think is you look like a million bucks you know it's a cliche but it means you look really good um, you're looking really really good well put together like you can um, afford how well you look which is part of what makes you look so good and so on you look like a million bucks but then um, it becomes literalized and, the, and it's exactly the opposite of what you're expecting so if you say my love is like a red red rose um, anorectic prickly and um, so, so um, fragile that um, bits of her head keep falling off in the slightest wind um, that would not be the standard idea of what that metaphor means Um, So the tenor is basically the meaning that we get often, in most cases, in real life, where almost all language is metaphorical. Um, It's the meaning that we get uh, without 
um, really thinking, how do I know it means this? And the vehicle is the literal words, the literal thing that's being said that will convey, because it's a vehicle, it will convey the tenor, the basic idea that the metaphor is giving you. Um, so, um, you know, when Hamlet says that he will take arms against a sea of troubles um, um, or suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, um, what he means by that we get immediately that um, bad things happen to him and it feels like he's being attacked um, with slingshots and arrows. Um, if it were instead that fortune is so outrageous that she helps Hamlet by um, giving him a sling to put his arm in if he's wounded and arrows pointing the way to safety, um, that would not be getting the tenor of that metaphor. Um, everyone would know, or every native speaker of English would know that that was wrong. Um, to take arms against a sea of troubles um, would be to fight against something that you couldn't possibly defeat um, rather than, I don't know, piling up a bunch of arms to produce a kind of dike, um, killing a lot of people, chopping their arms off and piling them up like branches to produce a dike that would prevent the sea of troubles <laughs> from um, um, flooding the land that you're in? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, so we get tenors, we get them all the time, and the vehicles are the literal words, the ideas, the imagery that convey um, the tenors to us. Um, in the idea of a tenor and a vehicle, notice that the vehicle is itself a vehicle. That is, it's a metaphor. And the tenor is not really um, a vehicle because it's a much more abstract word, but it's the tenor. So the idea of tenor and vehicle, a metaphor being made up of tenor and vehicle, um, is helpfully, wait for it, self-describing. Um, because the vehicle is not really a vehicle on four wheels going, here's the tenor. Um, the we use the vehicle, we see the vehicle metaphorically, and the tenor of that vehicle is that it brings the tenor to us. Okay, so I hope that that's illuminating rather than confusing, Daniel? You get it? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, so talking about tenor and vehicle is, the, is, in a sense, the simplest way of talking about how metaphors and similes work. Um, metaphors and similes, in other ways, are very, very opposite to each other. Um, the simplest way of, of putting that opposition, since we're on this subject, the simplest way of putting that opposition is that every simile is true and every metaphor is false, um, if you're thinking literally. Um, and because you may have been taught um, when you first heard about um, similes and metaphors that they are really similar to each other, which would make similes and metaphors um, put them, make one a simile for the other. Um, they are similar to each other, but they're not the same thing. Um, and, and a really crucial way that they're not the same thing is metaphors are always false or they wouldn't be metaphors. Um, if you say my love is a red, red rose, um, that's not true unless you're a flower fancier um, and you have a particular flower that matters to you. Um, but if you say my love is like a red, red rose, that is true. But on the other hand, everything is like a red, red rose. Um, 
this piece of chalk is like a red, red rose because it is um, elongated as red, red roses are. Um, there are ways that it's unlike a red, red rose because everything is also unlike everything that it's not. But everything in the universe is like everything else in the universe in some ways and unlike everything else in the universe in other ways. And that, that's true absolutely. There's no, um, there are no two objects in the universe that it's not true to say that they're like each other and no two objects in the universe of which it's not true to say that they're unlike each other. Um, metaphors are, you're saying two objects are the same thing and that's never true. Um, so a metaphor is always false, a simile is always true. Um, now what Dunn does, what Dunn's done um, is to take a simile, a chemic, an alchemist, is like a lover or is like or does what lovers do, which is to <coughs> um, want to produce something great, something rich and long, gold or love, something that will be rich and produce long delight, gold and love, you could say, um, but has never been able to do it, just as lovers have never been able to achieve the rich and long delight that they dream of, has never been able to do it, um, but nevertheless gets sometimes something odoriferous or medicinal, medicinal, um, as lovers get a winter-seeming summer's night, and he glorifies his, his pregnant pot, which fits in with what in the analogy of lovers? The actual pregnancy? Okay, could be. Yeah, so there's, there's a possible hint of actual pregnancy there. Good. Um, just a possible hint, but yeah. And notice the name of the poem is Love's Alchemy, so this is clearly a crucial um, analogy that he's working on there. Child? Yeah, um, but just let's be purely formal about this. That is, he, the structure here is as blah, 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 so blah, blah, blah. Well, just the pregnancy of the, the, <coughs> their feelings, just the pregnancy of what they think is love, how poignant they think it is, but it's not. Okay, so in a way what you could say is that there's something really neatly dialectical, as we say, about the way Dunn is doing this, which is that it's usually the case that when you use an analogy, the vehicle, as we could say, is supposed to be helpful to you. Um, that is, uh, to take a famous one, Marconi was asked how does, or well, okay, Marconi was asked how does wireless, um, how, do, how does wireless work? Um, he was the first person to figure out that you could send messages on radio waves. So um, I'm sure this is an apocryphal story. Um, but he said, well, let me tell you how telegraphs work. So here's how a telegraph works. Um, you see a dog, and you scratch its head, 
and the dog wags its tail. And if you guys have ever played with dogs, you also know if you scratch a dog's belly, you can get its leg to shake in, in syncopation with, or in rhythm with your scratches. So, um, so Marconi basically says, so that's how telegraphs work. You see, a, you see a dog, you scratch its head, it wags its tail. The more you scratch its head, the more it wags its tail. So what you're doing here, scratching its head, produces a result at a distance, it wags its tail. Um, and just imagine that a telegraph line is a gigantic dog, um, which extends from where you're sending the message to where whoever is receiving the message is receiving the message. Um, and they said, okay, that's a good analogy for a telegraph, so how does wireless work? And he says, well, it's just like that, except you don't have the body of the dog. <laughs> um, so it didn't help much. Um, <coughs> but the analogy, at least, of telegraphy, of, of telegraphs to dogs, will help for people who, are, who find it strange that I could send a message somewhere. You could say, look, if, you, if, I'm, um, if there's a dog with his head in one room and his tail in the other room, you can see whether or not I'm scratching the dog's head, even if you can't see me and can't see the dog's head, by whether the dog is wagging its tail or not. Um, so that's how um, telegraphs work. They're just like, a, te a telegraph is like a very long dog, and I can scratch its head here, and you can see that I'm scratching its head by the fact that it's wagging its tail where you are. Um, so that idea, that's an analogy. It helps. Here's, here's a mysterious process, action, or a message that goes from one place to a place far away. And here's how that process works. It's just like what happens when you scratch a dog's head. And then people say, OK, that makes sense. Now I get it. Um, for us, of course, it makes sense. And, and uh, you don't need the explanation. But in the 19th century, people did need the explanation. In the, in the mid-19th century, people did need the explanation for how, um, how telegraphs worked. Um, okay, so generally the explanation is going to um, clarify the thing that's supposed to be explained. Um, for Dunn, you have to go back and forth between the explanation and the thing it's supposed to be explaining. And what happens is they start explaining each other. So that Dunn will say, as alchemists talk about what they have produced in their um, pots, and they've never produced gold, so too lovers think that love will be great, but it never is. OK, so that's the easy part of the analogy. Um, now, the first question you could ask is, which of these is easier to understand? Lovers dream a rich and long delight, but get a winter-seeming summer's night? Or, no chemic yet the elixir got, but glorifies his pregnant pot, if by the way to him befall some odoriferous thing or medicinal? Which of those required more work to understand? Which of those do we spend more time on? The lovers? No, the oh, the second one of the way I was yeah, just saying. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the thing that's supposed to be explaining what love is like, the explanation turns out to be harder than the thing it's supposed to be explaining, which is that you have to think about alchemy and the elixir and other odiferous things that befall the alchemist and so on. So the question is, why have an explanation that's harder than the thing it's supposed to be explaining. Why have an analogy where the analogy itself is harder 
than the thing it's supposed to clarify. In other words, if you say, so what's a telegraph like? And you say, well, you know, imagine quantum entanglement <laughs> and um, imagine that um, packets of information, even though they are, um, there aren't yet in a collapsing, um, um, the, there hasn't been a collapse of the quantum waveform yet, so it could go either way. But then imagine that at one place you collapse the quantum waveform so that that causes a symmetrical um, quantum um, uh, collapse at the other side. Um, so that therefore, by collapsing something at this point, you, there's, there's a similar collapse at the other point, and the person can read information there. So imagine that. <laughs> and then just imagine that you do it with magnets, and all you're doing is, is you're um, causing a magnetism to go down a wire, and it causes magnetic reaction at the other end. Okay, see? That's easy. Um, so the point is the explaining telegraphy through quantum entanglement? No. Um, what people do tend to do is explain quantum entanglement through telegraphy. Um, but the, here, what Dunn is doing is he's giving you a much harder explanation than the thing that it's supposed to explain. Um, and that, again, is peculiarly modern. Um, but you could also say maybe that in some sense, it's the heart of what poetry is, which is, or at least a certain kind of poetry, which is finding a novel way. <coughs> uh, um, sometimes the, the 20th century word that the Russian formalists will use is the word defamiliarization, a defamiliarizing way to say something that people could get already without your having to do this. But it slows you down. It makes you work to understand. And in working to understand, it's almost as though you get more of the experience than if you just sum it up in a quick and elegant metaphor. So here, the way you can see the sign of this is something like this, that a winter-seeming summer's night, that's already a metaphor. In other words, you could already have a pretty great um, one-line description of love if you were to say, love is really a winter-seeming summer's night. And then people would know you were depressed and against love and um, disappointed by it because it's a metaphor. Um, now, <coughs> if you simply said love is a summer's night, um, then that would be a metaphor which said less or at least said something different, which is that a summer's night is wonderful, um, but short. And that's what a line like that would tell you. Love is a summer's night. But if you say love is a winter-seeming summer's night, you're saying more. And um, the metaphor is sufficient to itself to say what it's saying. Um, and then the two lines, that's all you need. Lovers dream a rich and long delight, but get a winter-seeming summer's night. Um, what more do you need to understand his complaint? So then the question is, so why does he give you this really hard analogy in order to explain something that he can then say really beautifully and smoothly in two lines after that? So that's my question for you. I, there is an an I don't think this is like the end of Go and Catch a Falling Star. I, I have a particular answer in mind, but um, why do you think he does it? Do you see the, four yeah, Daniel. Um, 
Oh, can you repeat the question? Why would he take two lines which are smooth and beautiful and you could say um, the understanding um, we understand easily um, and with a a certain kind of smoothness that we value in poetry that is a kind of elegant um, ease with which we can take in some, some part of what beauty in poetry is is that it's easy um, we never would have come up with it it's, um, um, the words are worth noticing they're extraordinary um, but they also have a kind of ease so that as soon as we hear them we feel that they're right um, so that's one kind of poetry the kind of poetry that most people <coughs> like immediately. Um, If you like poetry, that's the kind of poetry you will tend to like immediately. Um, And he can do it. He's just done it. Um, So lovers dream a rich and long delight, but get a winter-seeming summer's night. Um, It doesn't feel like you have to say any more than that. Um, But then he says, let me explain that. Um, It's just like an alchemist glorifying his pregnant gut pot, even though he's never gotten the elixir. Um, If it, by the way to him, befalls some odiferous thing or medicine all. And part of, you know, we've been sort of making jokes about Dunn's um, where we stumble on pronunciation in Dunn. Um, But it's not a joke. Dunn makes some lines harder to work out just how to say them than others. So that when you, those rhymes on, you know, position um, and so on, you have to think how to make those lines rhyme. You have to think about the meter of some of these lines. It's not like, oh yeah, that's preparatory work that we have to do before we can read the poem right. No, that's part of the experience of the poem, is thinking about how to pronounce certain lines. Um, in Dunn more than in most people that's part of the experience of the poem is working out the stresses and working out the rhymes Um, not only in Dunn but um, um, it's something particularly prominent in Dunn Um, so here he gives us two lines where we don't have to think so lovers dream a rich and long delight, but get a winter-seeming summer's night, and we don't think to ourselves, so lovers dream a rich and long is a delight or delicht, <laughs> um, and get a winter-seeming summer's nicht. I guess I don't really know. It could be either. Um, we don't think that. Um, the line is just transparent to us, you could say. Even though it's a metaphor, it's transparent. And then there are these four lines that we really have to think hard about. Um, and those four lines are supposed to be explaining the two easier lines. So the harder lines are supposed to be explaining the easier lines. They obviously don't. Do they? Yeah, Grace. Well, I think they complicate the metaphor and they add nuance and you get things that you wouldn't have gotten out of just the two lines. Okay. Um, like when he says, um, uh, but glorifies his pregnant pot. So glorifies, it has this connotation of like 
you know, talking up your achievements out of some self-consciousness. Uh-huh. So when you apply that to the lovers, it's like, are they just sort of naively compensating for, like, the cruelty of life? Or, um, it, I, I lost track of my thought, but <laughs> I think that it, yeah, it complicates it, and, um, as far, it makes the speaker of the poem seem not just cynical, but also, like, enlightened. Okay. <laughs> enlightened, because he doesn't believe in alchemy. Is that why? Or? No. Or because he well, knows. yes, but. <laughs> or because he knows how, what alchemists are like. That, that is that they're also, always. But also he's comparing love, which is more commonly accepted as sort of a transcendent or like almost magical thing, to alchemy. Okay, good. Like, right. Okay, nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just. I mean, I think it's telling that, I mean, it's, it's the title of the poem. So, I mean, the intentional complexity of those lines would almost seem to suggest, like, the, the point of the poem is love's alchemy. Why, why, how is love like alchemy? Well, like, in order to, to take the, the couplet, which is simple and could, could describe why love is complicated, he needs to sort of bend over backwards to, to get the, al to fit the alchemy part in and make it, man, I'm not being fair. Um, I think I, I I question whether we really are intended to have the alchemy metaphor explain the summer's night metaphor. I think it's the other way around. Uh huh. Just because the but they're juxtaposed that way, we sort of anticipate that we're we're getting this is like this, but I think it's in reverse, and that's sort of evidenced by the title. Okay, just, so, just to say that officially, when you say just as, so also, the just as is supposed to explain the right. so also. So I, I agree with you, but notice that it's, that, that um, forces us, us um, structurally against the grain, against the official structure of the poem. And I think that's part of the point, yeah. Um, yeah, Nikki. Um, I was basically going to say what Fulton sort of said, that maybe it's not the point of the analogy to make sense. It's that we think that love is something that can be achieved, but like like finding the elixir, it, it's, it's not. And just like an alchemist searches for, like hopelessly for the elixir, people search hopelessly for love, which is never found. Okay, good. Like the analogy, the meaning of the analogy is never found either. Or like all oh, the nice. Okay, yeah, I want to get back to that. I think you're right. Um, Daniel? Yeah, I, was, I, I, I kind of got this one thing you were saying. I don't know, I was a little confused. But it was very well. It, yeah, it's fine. I don't know. Um, it's like, yeah, it, like, it's showing how love is supposed to be like alchemy, so it's difficult. And then, so like, like I think that's the first metaphor. It's supposed to give like the, the, the frustration he feels when he's trying to find love. And then he says like, so like, once you go through that frustration, you, you realize what love is, and then you can state it simply. But when you're in it, it's not like that. 
Okay. I mean, if you wanted to get really literal, you would say it's like he's trying to transmute a metaphor that doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that I, I think that I think you're right. So, here's one thing to notice: lovers dream are rich. So, sorry, lovers dream are rich in long delight. Um, tell me why that. How many? Um, there's a plural. How many people is that plural? We assume two. Yeah, we assume that it's the two lovers. How does that go with the alchemist and his pot? Well, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, you could you could say say then not not a man and a woman and not an alchemist and his pot, but all alchemists and all lovers. Right. And so who are the pots, then, in the analogy? The women. The women, yeah. So male lovers, like alchemists, each dream of rich and long delights, and each of them spend a winter-seeming summer's night with their pots. (laughs) So you're saying the lovers are not a man and a woman, but all male lovers. Yeah. But I think he wants you to work that out. That is, that it's that when you say, if you just had those two lines, so lovers dream of rich and long delight, but get a winter receiving summer's night. Um, if you just read those two lines, you think um, it's sad for the two of them. Um, it's like the end of the Eve of St. Agnes. Now it's like the, it's what's not being found is a woman, not the love. Right. Or not love with them together. They can't find it together. It's a man finding yeah, it's it's men think that women are going to be great, and then they just turn out to be like alchemist pots, full of odiferous things, especially when you add some new liquid to them. So it's less sad than we thought more offensive. More, more offensive. <laughs> yeah, that is what he's done in a way, is taken a beautiful pair of lines and made you unpack it into something not beautiful. Um, intentionally. I think Justy would say, and I think I would agree. Um, So the idea would be, I think, something like, um, think about lovers dreaming a rich and long delight, and what I want you to realize is what you're thinking about is men, not couples. And um, the rich and long delight that they're imagining is what happens if they stir the pot um, with their stirrers. And um, they may get some odiferous or medicinal thing out of it, um, but they're not going to get the gold that they want. Even if they say, oh, look, the pot is pregnant um, because it's got this nice stuff in it, um, but the stuff is just stuff and it's not gold. So notice then how much that whole... um, first stanza is about finding gold. So you, why do you dig love's mine? You're finding, you're looking for gold. Um, why does the alchemist put stuff in his pot? He's looking for gold. Um, so that he's treating having sex as going deep into um, some cavity a mine or a pot, some concavity, um, a mine, a pot, or a woman. 
looking for gold and not finding it. So it's a, it's a pretty appalling, I mean, I hope you're appalled, um, a, pretty, a pretty appalling description of um, what sexual desire desires. Um, but in any case, it's almost as though um, and I think this is this is where I'm agreeing with with Jesse and, and Nikki that um, working out this metaphor and going deeper into it, you're having the same experience that the metaphor is describing, which is you thought it was this really lovely pair of lines, and then it turns out no, it's just another kind of um, uh, misogynistic and um, disgusted, sexually disgusted image. that for a moment <coughs> what looks like parity between man and woman, which is a theme as we've seen he keeps going back to, you know, um, we're not faithful, you shouldn't be faithful, or women are as constant as men are, or um, tis true, it is break of day, so what? Don't leave, why would you leave? I gave you my honor. Um, and I continue to give me give you my honor by having you stay with me. All those moments of parody that Dunn is thinking about between men and women, and you'll see that in a valediction for bidding morning, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, all of that is undone here, so that what looks like parody, lovers, that is man and woman, both of them thinking that this will last, turns out to be, no, men take their um, meat puppets, to use uh, William Gibson's term, and think they're going to be fun, but they're not. But there's no sympathy whatever with women in this poem. Zilch, and the moment that looks like sympathy with women turns out not to be. And that seems like a good metaphor for the way the speaker, now we will say the speaker, um, thinks of women. You pretend to have a little sympathy with them in order to have sex with them, but yuck. That's essentially what he's saying. So you pretend to talk about lovers as though they're on equal terms, but then it turns out lovers means men. All us men think that it'll be nice if we can find a woman to love, and we're always wrong, because they're just like the smelly pots of alchemists. Yeah. But I wonder if, um, you know, an equally sexist but slightly less misogynistic because it can, you know, take aim at men too, but the idea that, well, you know, you could read the speaker as being critical of men too, but like, look how absurd these male alchemists are because they know mm -hmm. it's not yeah. gold, yeah. but yet they're glorifying it anyway, going back to, you know, the indifferent or the indifference um, poem. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, these are just minor degrees of, of um, um, judgment here, but yeah, yeah. But it, I no, I, clearly, and what what? It, but that's part of a sense of um, women. They make you hope for something um, that can't be. So you look like an even. So you, so they so they turn you into idiots and fools. Right. <clears throat> um, so. 
you know, women are disgusting, and they also have this even worse aspect to them, which is they um, make men into into idiots, which is um, another thing to say against them. Um, it's not like the second stanza gets any better. Um, our ease, and now we know the hour here means men. Our ease, our thrift, our honor, and our day, shall we for this vain bubble's shadow pay? So will we give up our ease, our thrift, our honor, and our day, that is um, all our time, for shall we pay all of that not even for a vain bubble, but for the shadow of that vain bubble. Ends love in this that my man, um, everyone will tell you, actually, what will people tell you? What is yours? <laughs> your mic goes, oh, no, wait. No, sorry, Justin, you're the one. You have the penguin, is that right? Uh, yes. No, so what? I have the, what is it? Okay. Everyman Classics. Okay. Yes, no, I, I know the Oxford says servant. What does yours say for my man? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, that's, that's the first and most obvious meaning. That is, um, is it really true, here you can think of Downton Abbey, that um, um, the best experience of sexual delight that a person can have, no matter how aristocratic, how um, upper class, how... Um, much in command of his life is no better than a servant's experience of sex? Really? That's terrible, is what the speaker of this poem is saying. Um, ends love in this, that my man can be as happy as I can if he can endure the short scorn of a bridegroom's play. Um, so is that all love is? That it's the experience that servants have? that poor people have? You can't have a better experience than that? Um, sort of the opposite of one of my favorite sayings of Andy Warhol, which is um, he was drinking a can of Coke, and he just looked at it with joy. Not Diet Coke, real Coke. <laughs> Coke classic. Like maybe what you're drinking. Um, oh, <laughs> well, he had a can of Coke, and he said, the President of the United States can't have a better Coke than this. <laughs> so that's a great thing about Coke. I'm for the Coke commercial, by the way, in the Super Bowl. I don't know what you guys think, but uh, Glenn Beck was against it. The American one? The, the American, the beautiful one, oh, yeah. yeah. Isn't English good enough for America? That was the <laughs> response. Yeah, Glenn Beck said, yeah, no, Glenn Beck actually said about the commercial that um, Coke was trying to divide America. Like it, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. It became a right wing meme really fast. Um, how evil Coca Cola is. Um, I guess because they had a commercial on the mainstream media or something. Um, so, um, but Dunn is saying the opposite, which is is this the best that there is, what some servant can have? But I also think that you have to. Um, in the context of this poem, the way we've been reading this, ends love in this doesn't only mean is this um, where love ends up. Um, that is, it's not only a temporal um, consequence, but um, physically where does love end, so to speak, for a male? Geometrically. 
and marriage. Geometrically. So Freud, I'll, let, me, let, let me tell it to you by way of a joke. Okay. Freud is explaining slips of the tongue. Okay, yes, Nikki. Oh, no, I'm not going to be the one to say it. <laughs> All right. But does everyone see why Nikki doesn't want to say it? Okay. The tip? Yes. <laughs> okay. That's where love ends. Yeah. In this. That's as far as it goes. To the very tip and no farther. Um... So that then my man would mean? Uh, yeah, good. She was to say that okay. Yes, good, nice. Um, Freud is explaining slips of the tongue. Remember we talked about the one about... Um, so, but, so the story that Freud tells is um, that uh, there's a woman who's... Um, complaining about the hypocrisy of modern society where women have to work really, really hard um, in order to attract mates and they have to show themselves as perfect in every way and accomplished in all these different ways. You know, think of Jane Austen novel that they have to be able to, you know, play the piano and draw and um, have a fund of conversation and be charming and be beautiful and um, be um, self-effacing and um, just be perfect in every way. And, and this woman is saying, and what does a guy have to be? All he needs to have is five straight limbs. Uh, four straight <laughs> limbs. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> Good, I'm glad you like it. A lot of people don't laugh at Freud's jokes. <laughs> um, no, he wrote a book on jokes in which I there's like one. That. Did you really? I'm sorry for you. It was terrible. It's actually my father, who, um, whose first language is German, um, when I would tell him some of the jokes from um, Freud's book, Jokes in the Relation to the Unconscious, he actually recognized them from Germany. He said, they're actually really funny in German. I feel, I had that feeling throughout the whole book. I was like, there's translation issues going on here. Yeah. They're also antiquated jokes. It's like, they're weirdly stiff because of the translation. It's yeah. No, idea. they are, and they are antiquated. Kant tells a joke. Oh, God. If you he can does. believe it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he says in the Critique of Judgment, where he's trying to he's trying to explain why we laugh at jokes. He tells a joke. It's like the only joke in all of Kant, um, and the joke is um, if someone says um, he was in <coughs> he was under such stress that his hair turned white overnight, we do not laugh. But if someone says that he was in such stress that his wig turned white overnight. Then we are shaken with peals of uproarious laughter. <laughs> so that's the way Kant writes it. And I don't think anyone oh, reading it. Yeah. Oh, that's not funny. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> it's it's funnier than anything else in Kant. <laughs> by a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, there is that joke there. So, ends love in this, where the this is a particular this, that my man can be as happy as I can if he can endure the short scorn of a bridegroom's play. So, officially, what it means is really is um, the best that you can get out of love what servants get out of it. They, you know, they have sex with their wives, and um, obviously, um, it's scornful and unhappy and embarrassing and none of it um, 
works the way <coughs> it should, and is that the best that um, I can be? But it's also my man is my penis, and um, is love really this kind of ridiculous, embarrassing sexual act? How is does that, that make all sense it with is? The, the bridegroom's play that has that fit in. Um, that is entering into the ceremony, um, getting undressed, having the, like the wedding night. Okay. Yeah, the wedding night, um, and it all feels like scorn. You know, the the um, there's a theory of I'm sure it's a true theory of um, sexual desire that um, without a sense of of um, embarrassment and um, um, Nervous nervousness in that embarrassment and fear of scorn and um, so on. Um, sex wouldn't be um, that that that's that's part of the central experience of sex, and it would be a lot more boring without it. Um, that's why people talk about sex as dirty. Um, that is the dirtiness is part of it, um, and here that word is coming out in the word scorn endure the short scorn of a bridegroom's play. That loving wretch that swears tis not the body's marry, but the mind's. So what loving wretch would that be? Don. Don, who said <laughs> it in what poem? The, the, ecstasy. the ecstasy, yeah. That loving wretch that swears tis not the body's marry, but the mind's, which he in her angelic <coughs> finds. So what does he find angelic in her? Her mind. Her mind, yeah would swear as justly that he hears in that day's rude horse minstrelsy the spheres. Um, so where have we seen that? Yeah, the intelligence. Uh-huh, each sphere with its own intelligence. And um, so someone who says that he finds in the woman that he loves, he finds her mind angelic, is just the same kind of guy who would say that he hears in that day's rude horse minstrelsy, that is, whatever you hear, whatever music is being played outside in the most ridiculous ways, but also in the day of having sex with someone, the day of making love with them. Which in this context could be the wedding. The wedding, day. yeah. That he's hearing the music of the spheres in the rude horse minstrelsy of the wedding. Now, what you could say is, yeah. In other words, this might be done um, giving you the um, other possible case from the exercise in unparalleled cynical bitterness that this poem otherwise is. That is that, wouldn't it be a good thing if you could hear the spheres in the rude horse minstrelsy of human music. That is, if that enabled you to transcend, if what music did, like metaphors, is they were vehicles that brought you to a tenor that transcended the physical materiality of the vehicles. So that's a possible nice moment. I mean, I mean that genuinely. I don't mean oh, he's about to tear it apart. He is about to tear it apart, but it's not clear that Dunn is tearing it apart. It's the speaker is about to tear it apart, but it's not clear that Dunn is. So it would be great if you could hear in that day's rude horse minstrelsy, the spheres. Just as it would be great if you could hear in those lines the possibility 
of hearing the spheres. Again, root horse minstrelsy, that's pretty impressive. Hard to say, hard to um, work out how to say it, but pretty impressive conglomeration of words. It's an example of rude horse minstrelsy and an example which might allow you to think, yes, the spheres, minstrelsy and the spheres, that's a good thing. But now he tells us, hope not <coughs> for mind in women. So whoever thinks that it's the mind that matters and he finds her mind angelic, the speaker here is saying, uh-uh, hope not for mind in women. And then there's a huge debate, which I think, again, is not only insoluble, but in a sense doesn't matter. But there's a huge debate about how to punctuate these last two lines. Um, and in, they're punctuated differently in um, different versions of the manuscripts. Um, but the way, how do you have it in the Everyman? Uh, sweetness, comma, and no, wit. no. Start with at their best. Oh, sorry. Uh, at their best, comma, sweetness. Oh, is this semicolon? No, there's a smudge. Yeah. <laughs> it really. No, there's a tiny little. It's not. It's not a semicolon, but it looks like it could be. Best, comma, sweetness, comma, and wit. They are, comma, but, comma, mummy, comma, possessed. Okay, so you got all the commas there. Um, so. In that edition, what you're getting is, at their best, what they are is sweetness and wit. At their best, comma, sweetness and wit. But, or at their best, comma, sweetness and wit. <coughs> they are. So the, so the way you would parse that is, at their best, they are sweetness and wit. At their best, sweetness and wit they are. But, Mummy possessed. So one possibility is they're really sweet and witty because they're trying to seduce you, but as soon as you have sex with them, they turn out to be mummies, where possessed means had sex with. That is, in the kind of 19th century, I mean, this survives through the 19th or even 20th century. Remember that Jakobson quotation? Um, I possessed Anna, whatever her name is, last night. Um, so to possess a woman, if you're a guy, um, means to have um, gone all the way with her. Um, so that's one possibility. Another possibility is um, even at their best sweetness and wit. So the way the Oxford has it, um, just so you know, uh, Justy, is... At their best, sweetness and wit. No commas at all. You can look at Zach's if you want. At their best, sweetness and wit, all they are is mummy possessed. That is, at their best, sweetness and wit, women take the best case, like in Go and Catch a Falling Star. If thou finds one, let me know. Such a pilgrimage were sweet. Same word sweet there. Um, even at their best sweetness and wit, take the best, sweetest, wittiest woman that you can find. And really what she is, is a zombie. A mummy possessed by a devil. So the word possessed there is now not meaning possessed in 
the um, um, sexual sense, but possessed in the Dostoevskyan sense, um, the exorcist sense, where you are possessed by a devil. So at their best sweetness and wit, all women are are mummified dead bodies with devil souls in them. Um, which would you prefer him to be saying? The first one. Um, the first one's a bit nicer because doesn't it kind of like the narrator's kind of like taking on some of the blame? Uh huh. Yes. Also, yeah. I like I like him saying the, the second one, the harsher one, because it fits in with the poem better. Uh huh. I'd rather be looked as like a manipulating person than a possessed demon. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's worse. Yeah. Um, but which is it that you want? Not. <laughs> yeah, not what, not what, um, not what thought is a worse thought. Um, they're both pretty <coughs> bad, but I agree with you that one is worse than the other. I think uh, when mommy goes back to the pot and goes back to the cavity. Uh huh. Yeah. So so. Yeah, I think it's the second one. So I mean, I think it just means that like they're nothing but a useless body to have sex with. Uh -huh. like, a, like a shell. That's yeah. oh, that's yeah. creepy. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be mummy possessed by a demon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to they turn into a mummy when you possess them. Um, although that could, could, it could... It could be the first one. Cause just like, in my... Sorry. His perception of them, they're like a real person. And he has sex with them and he's not um, infatuated with them anymore. So then you realize, like, oh, they're... Or, you know. I don't yeah. know if there's any significance in this, but in mine, mummy is capitalized and italicized. Um, yeah, there. It's. I think that's from a manuscript, but it's just because it's an unusual word, um, which is something you would do at the time. Okay. <coughs> um, I think, you know, maybe there's more to it than that, but um, I don't think there is. Um, I think probably the ambiguity is supposed to be there. That is, um, that oscillating between um, at the at their best sweetness and wit they are, but mummy possessed. That does put it on him. Um, what it means in some sense is he will find sweetness and wit in women um, while he's feeling desire. But then afterwards, he becomes a jerk um, and no longer feels attracted to them because it turns out that the sweetness and wit that he likes in them, he doesn't really. For him, it's just um, a way of telling himself. He makes them into mummies. Yeah. So that would be his own projection. Um, and therefore, the projection would be that he turns them into possessed mummies. So when he, <coughs> when he possesses them, they become mummies, at which point, or the reason for that is that he has turned them into possessed mummies by himself possessing them. So it's his own fault. Unlike the guy who actually does like, um, does hope for mind in women, does find her mind angelic. Um, unlike that guy, um, he's the one 
who is unable to treat women as human beings. And Dunn knows that. That is to say that this is a place where um, Dunn is being outrageous, um, but we have to distinguish between Dunn, Dunn and the speaker. And you could say, you know, bringing the ecstasy back in, um, you could say that the person he's rebuking here is the speaker of the ecstasy. That has put these poems a little bit in dialogue with each other. Um, I don't know how far you could go putting the songs and sonnets into dialogue with each other, but I bet you could go pretty far. That is, that you could see um, the addressees of some poems as the speakers of others. And, you know, the way, one way to think about this, I think, is to say, since we won't have time to do it now, but we will do it on um, Friday, um, that uh, the addressee of Go and Catch a Falling Star, that is, you know, go around the world and swear <coughs> and see if you can find a woman true and fair, might be the speaker of a poem like A Valediction Forbidding Morning, who does um, go around the world and does find a woman true and fair. Um, so we'll pick up with that on Friday. Lily Tomlin has that. Um